1: This is Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. I'm Dean Linke, joined once again by Christian Labors, the president and CEO of the ECNL. And Coming up, Christian, we're going to be visited by Dr. Fergus Conley, who's one of the foremost experts in elite performance. He's also an author. Share with us what to expect in this exciting one-on-one interview. Thanks, Dean.
2: Fergus is a great person that has an incredible background in working with some of the highest performing teams and athletes and military personnel all over the world. So he's going to talk to us about leadership, performance, culture, and all things related to high performance success with a very honest and genuine and authentic perspective as well about the person at the heart of it. So I think this will be a really, really interesting discussion and
1: we look forward to it. And it starts after this message from the ECNL Christian Labors with Dr. Fergus Connolly.
0: As the game continues to evolve in the United States, the ECNL remains the standard of excellence in youth soccer. The Elite Club's National League has grown to include over 200 clubs and nearly 50,000 players across the country, with a robust competition platform for teams, educational resources for coaches and clubs, and unparalleled identification and development opportunities for players. Alongside its member clubs, collaborating to create a better future, the ECNL continues to raise the game every day. The ECNL is more than a league. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Once again, here's Dean.
1: Dr. Fergus Conley is one of the foremost experts in elite performance. Dr. Fergus Conley has worked for some of the world's leading professional sports teams, special forces units, and Fortune 500 companies, the San Francisco 49ers, Liverpool FC, Google, Verizon, and many others. Fergus is also the author of Game Changer, The Art of Sports Science, and 59 Lessons, working with the world's elite coaches, athletes, and special forces. And speaking of game changers, we are also joined by Christian Lavers, the president and CEO of the ECNL for what I believe will be a game changing discussion with Fergus and Mr. Lavers. Dr. Connolly, before I turn it over to Christian, hello and welcome. Thank you, Dean. Thank you, Christian. All right. The floor is yours with Dr. Connolly. Christian, this is going to be a great show. Enjoy it.
2: Thanks, Dan. It's another introduction that I have to live up to now because that's another impressive list of accomplishments.
1: Well, and to your credit, Christian and Jason Cutney and everybody involved with Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, the guests have been off the charts and that includes today. So take it away, Christian.
2: So Fergus, I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. It's great to speak to you. Obviously, You were one of uh, our most popular speakers at our coaching symposium three or four years ago now out in Las Vegas, and uh, it was such a great discussion there, and and we're really excited to have you now on the podcast to uh, continue some of those topics and dive into some new ones.
3: Christian, thanks for having me. Yeah, that was a a great event, and it was a great event for me as well because you had some other wonderful speakers and uh, some great questions and some great coaches, unfortunately, Obviously, with the pandemic, it's harder to get around people, but you just cannot put a value on sitting around, chatting, sharing ideas. It's invaluable.
2: On that regard, I think for those people that may not have been in Las Vegas, because we've grown a lot since then and and things change. And for those who may not know of you, I mean, you got a pretty impressive background. In terms of working in the category of high performance, I suppose. But can you give just sort of the uh, 10,000 foot background of Fergus's adventures across continents?
3: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, my very first job was at Bolton Wander, started in soccer, started in football. And I was fortunate enough to work with Welsh rugby team, San Francisco 49ers, consulted for a number of different teams, NBA, NFL, some work with special forces groups. But You know, at its core, it was always about trying to help athletes and, you know, high performers perform at the highest level. And it's always been, I guess, you're always searching, trying to help people perform at their highest level. And part of that then was always trying to search out and find the best coaches. And, you know, when I started, what am I now? I know I don't look at Christian, but uh, 43 now, I'm getting old. But when I started in my twenties, we didn't have things like ECNL bringing knowledge to coaches. Like we we just didn't have it. We didn't have things like this podcasts. Internet had just started, so I had to, you know, search and find coaches to go and learn from, and do a lot of that legwork on my own. And that was a challenge. Trying to find out who the good coaches are, who the best coaches are go and learn from them. Then along the way, you, you get to work with some great coaches and learn from them and, and learn from the, the the you know the good things that they do and and the things that maybe they could do better. So it's been a it's been a fun journey trying to learn and trying to improve myself all the time.
2: So learning is going to probably be a theme through a lot of this discussion. And I, I think I read somewhere now that every American or everybody with an internet access now has access to what would have been formerly the library of the aristocracy, you know, a hundred years ago, and information and content that they just never would have had any access or ability to see. And it really now, the challenge is actually, how do you find information that helps you move forward versus just disinformation or irrelevant information? How do you approach learning now in an era where I mean, it's not a question of whether you can find it. It's a question of what do you do with it and how do you keep from having too much?
3: You know, I'm glad you asked that question because I think that's the most important uh, challenge that coaches have today. The, the volume of information is there, but the skill set needed to decipher it and in particular critical thinking to be able to interpret information, take it on board, assess it, use it and view it critically is one of the skills that I think coaches need to practice. And so for me, it's always been about finding coaches who are actually working in the field and being successful. And so we spoke about, you know, uh, a number of years ago, I, I, Went to visit Vitor Frade, you know, the the father of, you know, what's referred to as tactical periodization. Because I had been exposed to it, and I had seen examples of it in the Premier League, for example. It was interesting. I read as much as I could. And then I, I wanted to go and visit, you know, the the source to learn from him. And I can't stress... How valuable that was because I got to speak with somebody who was using it and got to see what he had intended it to be as opposed to what people had represented it as. And it just reinforced a belief that I've always had that you need to take these concepts and principles, apply them critically, think about them, refine them, really understand them, and keep improving as a coach yourself. While on the one hand, we have all of this information. I can't stress the importance of coaches continuing to think critically and continuing to develop themselves professionally. It's so, so important. It's, it's more important now than ever before.
2: If I look at your background or your, even your resume, what comes to mind on this is almost this concept from, I think the book was Range about versatility and how there's such a a need and a demand for the skill of being able to take ideas from a variety of different places and apply them in new ways or apply them in new contexts. And it seems to some level, when you start talking about, there's obviously certain commonality in sport but there's also big differences from American football to you know soccer. But then you add in things like special forces, or you add in military, or you add in corporate. It seems to me that one of your strengths has to be that, in terms of taking ideas from one area and bringing them to another to increase performance. Is that a fair statement?
3: Yeah, but I could also say the same about you and your background, which, you know, when you have exposure to different things I think it might be a reflection on society as well. Sometimes we see things and we only see the differences rather than seeing the common traits. For me, maybe at a young age, I was exposed to different areas and different experts and very quickly you start to see the common, the commonalities, like the things that you can take from one area to the other that complement one another. And after a while working in different sports You know, initially my reaction was when I went from soccer to rugby, for example, oh, this is really uncomfortable. This is so different. I'd like to go back to what I know, which was soccer. But then after a while, I started to recognize the commonalities, started to focus more on principles. And that was more by accident rather than design. And then I started to realize, you know what? it's the human is still the same person. It's still the same thing. It's just playing a different sport. And there's so many things that we can transfer and learn. Yeah. uh, David Epstein's book range is an excellent example of taking ideas, being adaptable and taking time to see what we can learn from different areas. And very often that's really, really interesting. I, I find it fascinating to be able to learn from different areas and say, okay, what can I Essentially, steal what can I steal from different areas that would work? As coaches, we're all teachers, we can learn so much from teachers, for example. When I was at the 49ers, you know, I was faced with, you know, I think it was 95 guys in one of the first meetings, and I had to try and sell essentially, sell uh, broccoli, like sell why you should eat broccoli, why you should do recovery. You've
2: lost me at broccoli, just so you know.
3: (laughs) Well, I'd lost them, but I had to figure out, and so. I remember sitting in my office and I was going, how do I, you know, how do I get the importance of this across to multi-million dollar athletes? And in that case, what I was trying to do was trying to steal ideas from marketing and sales. And that's where, like you I mean in marketing, they talk about people uh, buy on emotion and justify on logic. So the emotion that I used in that case was, look, you guys want to take care of your families. You want to take care of your loved ones. So you need to stay in the game as long as possible. In order to do that, you need to eat healthy, and then eventually filter down to broccoli. You,
2: you got me. I'll take a bite of broccoli today.
3: <laughs> but that, but that was like you I mean you you steal like you 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 do you, you in essence steal ideas from you know who do, does these things really well.
2: One of the things
3: I think that is a theme through a lot of your work and the different books that you've
2: written, and even in hearing you talk in different formats, is that. Sort of concern for the person and looking at the person and not just the athlete or not just the soldier or not just the performer, but looking deeper and understanding the human. Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on that when it comes to performance or even relationships?
3: So early on when I started, right, it was just about how do I train someone to be, you know, to be good. And I would look at all of these people and try and figure out what separates like the great from the good. And my definition of being great was staying in in the sport for as long as possible. Because the longer you stay in the industry, or the longer you can help an athlete stay in the industry, the more money they make or the more successful they can be. And it's not just simply about money, but when you stay in the game, you keep learning. When I started to look at these you know, great athletes, they had a balance and it wasn't just about playing the game. They had a reasonably steady home life or they had a combination of good, healthy lifestyles. Not not perfect, you know, they weren't immune to going to McDonald's once or twice, but on the whole, they had a a good, steady balance. It became apparent to me that it was more about the person than who played the game, because initially it's all about learning the game, learn the game, but it's what happens off the field. And even I I myself, like I mean, I screwed up a few years ago, I got in trouble because I wasn't taking care of myself, you know, away from work as well as at work. And that really highlighted for me the importance of looking after the person who plays the sport because that frees them up to play what they're really good at doing. And they've been doing they've been playing the game since they were, you know, a very, very young kid. And it becomes more about helping the person develop. And when you would talk to players who played for you know great coaches like a Bill Walsh uh, at the 49ers yes they spoke about him as a coach but they really spoke about his impact on them as a person and that those kind of things had profound effects on on me as a coach and understanding if I wanted to be if I wanted to be good or to be great I had to concern myself with the person not just the player
2: one of the lessons you talk about is it's never about the two hours Right. And I think that's talking about what's going on outside of training as really a game changer. I've just dropped a couple of, (laughs) but uh, is, is that a similar concept?
3: Yeah, because when I was coaching, like, I mean, you put so much work into planning practice and and making it as detailed as possible, but the other 22 hours away from the field um, relationships, how people turn up, Has such an impact on, like, I mean, you've got guys, and it doesn't matter what age. I've helped high school athletes in disadvantaged areas, and they're coming in. Some of them haven't eaten. Some of them are coming from abusive families. Some of them are homeless. And, you know, that's going to impact how they're going to practice and play the game. And if you can help people away from the field, it's going to help on, on the game, help on game day. But the other thing, too, is, if you want to look at it from a societal perspective, the role of sport is to help young people learn lessons for life. You know, that's ultimately what we do. If you go back through history, you're teaching them to work as a team. You're teaching them to learn how to lose, learn how to win, recover from both. You're teaching them how to overcome, How to you know, you're teaching them resilience. Uh, you're teaching them how to, how to struggle for things, be successful, And that's really the the greater role that we as coaches have.
2: On that note, and it struck me, and we may have talked about this in Las Vegas when we were face-to-face, but it struck me that some of the mission statements or sort of the guiding purpose and vision of the best performing organizations doesn't really seem to be driven around that. It seems to be driven around that bigger purpose of contributing to society or contributing to Human development. So, have you seen that as well when you look? Because I know you've worked with a variety of them, but it just seems to me that it's almost a forest for the trees. People that are so focused on performance for performance sake tend not to get there. And people who are focused on a bigger picture can find their way to the top of the mountain.
3: Yeah. Not just find their way, but, but stay there, Christian. That's the difference. Like, I mean, I used to say to coaches, you know, give me any team for three or five years and we'll win something, but we're not going to stay there. I can push hard and drive hard. We will get to the top and might get there faster than somebody else, but you're not going to stay there because you don't have good values in place. You haven't taken the time to establish them. You don't have good habits both playing and lifestyle habits, you're not going to stay there. And there are coaches who, yeah, I talk about the three-year rule, you know, there are coaches who can be successful within three years, but then they have to either leave or they have to change their whole playing stuff because they just don't have those good ethical values in place or playing values in place. And you see it, you know, there are organizations who who I work with and not to name names, but you know, they know that this is an issue and it's becoming a bigger issue because it's very easy to figure out how to be successful. It's a completely different thing to stay there and to sustain that success.
1: We're here with Dr. Fergus Connolly. This is Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, a one-on-one with the CEO and president of the ECNL Christian Labors. We'll be back with more Dr. Fergus Connolly after this break.
0: Nike is a proud sponsor of ECNL Girls. Nothing can stop what we can do together to bring positive change to our communities. You can't stop sport, because hashtag you can't stop our voices. Follow Nike on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Soccer.com is proud to partner with the ECNL to support the continued development of soccer in the US at the highest levels. We've been delivering quality soccer equipment and apparel to players, fans and coaches since 1984 living and breathing the beautiful game ourselves our goal at soccer.com is to inspire you to play better cheer louder and have more fun visit soccer.com today to check out our unmatched selection of gear expert advice and stories of greatness at every level of the game
1: Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Dean Linky here, turning it over to Christian Lavers, the president and CEO who's with a game changer, Dr. Fergus Conley. Christian, I'll let you pick the interview back up.
2: So Fergus, you were just talking about the difference between getting to the top and staying there or achieving high level performance for a short period versus a long period. So I'm going to then nail you with a question on that, which is, you know, what trait and characteristics do you see most commonly with people that sustain excellence over a longer period of time? I mean, if you had to summarize a few things that you see when you see sustained excellence across a variety of fields, what is it?
3: One of the most important things is not to separate winning and losing. And it sounds contrary to what we might think, but you're teaching people that regardless as to the result, the goal is to get better. And with teams that ironically are successful, sometimes they become complacent because they think it was all about the win, when really it's about the performance. You know, If you beat a team that you're supposed to beat, but you play poorly, and you don't evaluate it, you don't see that poor performance, and you don't hold everyone to the same high standards, well, then you come back at to practice the next day and things are a little bit sloppy and you don't raise the bar and you don't. So it's about the the real competitor is yourself. Now, on the other hand, when you lose, sometimes teams and coaches beat themselves up, you know, they played the best team in the league and they were, you know, badly beaten and they, they start to get in essence, depressed about the performance when really the question was, did you play to your own standard And did you get better from the previous game? And it's about that constant improvement. And so that allows, you know, the athlete to to look at their own self and to evaluate. Am I getting better? And am I just improving every game or every training practice? And that's one of the most important things. I think the other thing is, you know, having good values as a team and an organization and leading and particularly for coaches, it's about leading. Everybody talks about, you know, how do I lead others? Well, you have to start by leading yourself, you know, and that's holding yourself to those high standards. It might be as simple as making sure you're always there on time, treating people fairly, not speaking ill or not being uh, disparaging about people like leading oneself. And those are the two most important things in organizations, because again, it's it's not a short battle it's a it's a long war it's about building something that's going to continue to propel itself
2: when you talk about those things i mean in some ways metrics of sporting performance are easy in some ways to define okay if we have possession of the ball for this percentage of time we're going to generally be successful if we get this many shots or whatever it may be and i'm sure you can go far more sophisticated than those but when you start talking about things like culture and values that are are softer that are qualitative more how do you get that to a point that it's actionable because I think there's a lot of people who understand the culture and the and the values piece as being important, but it's one thing to say it's important and stick a couple of words on a wall, and it's another thing to actually make that an actionable, palpable, tangible piece of your organization. How do you cross that bridge?
3: That's a great point because everybody like culture is one of those things that everybody talks about and yet nobody has a, has an idea, but ultimately when you when you're talking about something like culture you have to look at behaviors and it's 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 like an iceberg you know you've got the values which are underneath the water so honesty integrity respect for example but you have to talk about or explain to whoever's in the organization and it doesn't matter what level of organization we're talking about you have to link those values ultimately with behaviors and demonstrate and show examples of what is a good behavior and a poor behavior so for example respect you know how did you treat your opponent how did you treat your teammate and for coaches it's not just about pointing out poor examples of that but praising and encouraging good examples good behavior, good examples of you know respectful behavior to officials to teammates and very importantly to the opposition because it's far too easy to be disrespectful to the opponent, that's going to bite you in the backside when you, you know, when you become complacent or arrogant. And so it's about linking and demonstrating what those behaviors are. That's the important thing. Um, and particularly for young athletes and youth, uh, in youth teams, because some of them don't know, like you can talk about respect all you want, but it means different things to different people until you demonstrate and explain and praise and highlight examples of those you know things being done well so in some ways storytelling is actually a skill of a
2: leader in, in terms of telling a narrative of this is who we want to be or this is how somebody has exemplified what matters to us is that a fair
3: comment? Yes yeah, storytelling is storytelling is is very important. Um, and it's a skill. It's it's a skill that takes time to practice, and it's wonderful to be able to tell stories and, and show examples um, outside of the team. And then you want to be able to highlight it, you know, with, with your players, and say, you know, uh, guys, great game, blah blah blah. Uh, by the way, Christian, I want to you know thank you, or I want to highlight. This incident that happened, wonderful example of respect. Did everybody see that, you know, and move on. And and it gives you the opportunity within the group to show how we are demonstrating those behaviors. I
2: think the all blacks are obviously anytime you talk about an exceptional organization, they come up. And I know you've had some experience in competing against them and, and maybe even have done some work with them. But we had James Kerr come to our symposium a year ago. And he obviously wrote the book about the All Blacks. What struck me in listening to him talk was how they had kind of taken culture and made it into an incredible verb that was tied to, to symbolism and storytelling and metrics almost on everything that the All Blacks were connected to. This reinforcing, escalating impact of culture that when you really st- stood back and, and, appreciated all of those things it was almost overwhelming of what they did to create a culture of winning what is your perspective of the all blacks whether it's as competing against them or talking and working with them
3: losing to them um yeah you know that was one of the first internships was going down to new zealand um flying down to canterbury and i think there are a few things that are important i think the all blacks it's an island you know far removed from so many other countries to begin with. And that allows them have a very clear idea of identity. And that's a whole other question or a whole other topic in itself, but the fact that they can identify clearly who they are and can represent that. I think that one of the very interesting things that I learned was this idea of their only real competitor was their own best performance. And so, for example, they had never lost to Ireland while I was there. Um, I think they've only lost to Ireland once since. But I remember Richie McCaw, the captain, saying he did not want to be the first captain of an all-blacks team to lose to Ireland. So, again, it wasn't about losing to Ireland. It was about their performance every time they played this team that they were always going to beat or always expected to beat. He wanted to keep that standard high like playing against teams that they should compete against. So it was about their own standards. And so their competitor was the best all blacks team that they could be. And so those kind of things are really, really important to, to reinforce. And um, you know, the, the one thing that people took from James Kerr's book was, you know, about cleaning the sheds and leaving the locker room as tidy as possible. That's an example of a behavior that, you know, ultimately filters back to respect, you know, respect for the opponent, respect for, and so that's an example of, for example, now it doesn't matter. You can go clean the sheds all you want, but it's, what does it mean to the team? And one actually interesting story, and this was years before James had written the book, but I remember one of the coaches telling me how they got in trouble in France when they were cleaning the locker rooms, because some of the French journalists thought that they were trying to hide drug use by you know hiding syringes oh. or whatever. That was that was a downside that was a downside of it. But um but it but the important point here for teams and for coaches is, you know, identify the behaviors and praise the behaviors that represent the values that are important to you and your organization.
2: I'll ask a question that I think will be really difficult to answer, but I'll put you on the spot anyway. So if you had to pick one thing that top performers do every day, what is it? It's
3: turning up actually. It sounds sounds so simple, but Arsene Wenger, for example, at Arsenal, when he had that incredible team, it was just boringly repetitive. And I, I think people don't appreciate at times when you're successful, it's about having that routine of turning up and just getting, because there are days when you don't want to be there. There are days that you struggle. You just have to get there and turn up. And those are the days that, that matter. And so you know, all of the great athletes, it doesn't matter whether it's a Tom Brady or whoever, they have that that boring diligence and discipline of getting there, particularly on the days when they don't want to. And I think that's something that's uh, often underestimated. And I've been around teams that have been so dominant and they just have this almost boring, boring approach to just getting there. And some days gonna be good some days they're gonna struggle, but they're always there, they're always turning up.
2: So you mentioned Tom Brady and I'll maybe take a tangent here because his story is cliched, right? From Mr. Irrelevant in the draft pick to now probably the best football player of all time. And you look at so much of the prediction business of who's going to be the next great athlete or who's going to be the next pro. How do you look at that perspective? How do you look at evaluating potential or talent or or trying to determine who is going to be successful at at the highest levels?
3: I think it's incredibly difficult. And I think that that's a question that so many people have tried to, to answer, you know, over the years. And I think that in recent times, I think we've been, we've developed beyond just simply looking at physical metrics for a long time. It was looking at, you know, how fast someone runs and for example, you know, Tom's an incredible example of somebody that if you go back and look at his combine, he was so poor physically, relatively, but he was able to stay in the game and develop his skill, his tactical awareness, obviously his mental strength and stay in the game and compensate and also develop his physical qualities. I'm not sure it's possible to truly predict who is going to be great, but he is an example of... You know he's the definition of greatness in that he's not just got to the top but stayed there, and again it's um, about having that balance of on and off the field, and so when we look at players who we want to be or we want to help develop to be great, it you have to look at their personal life. I remember beating uh, Ruud van Nistelrooy a few years back in Holland. I was giving a talk. Well, there were two things were really interesting. One was. I was there to give a talk to young coaches and this, you know, this guy sitting down the back of the room asking questions and uh, I'm going, that, that cannot be rude van this but it was, and he was asking questions as a genuinely interested coach. Here's a guy who's won, you know, everything. And afterwards I was chatting with him, but I, I one of the questions I wanted to ask him was the story about when Alex Ferguson, I was trying to bring him to Manchester United initially and he uh, I think he failed his medical. He went back to Holland and within a week, he actually tore his ACL. And, but Ferguson called him and told him, look, we're going to come back for you. Uh, rehab your ACL and get back. So that was the story. And I was asking him, was that true or was that just fiction? He said, no, it was true. And I said, why would Alex Ferguson call you after you tore your ACL um, and there's no guarantee you're going to make it back. And he said something really interesting to me. Uh, he said that Ferguson did give him that, called him, gave him support. But he said, Alex Ferguson would have known that the odds were in my favor because he came to my apartment and saw where I lived. He visited with me. He saw that my apartment was tidy. He saw that I had a you know good lifestyle. He knew that I was dedicated and that was a real eye-opener for me. Ferguson was looking beyond just the player and looking at the person and how they live their life. Fascinating conversation with Dr. Fergus Conley.
1: We're gonna step aside, pay some more bills and come back for our final segment as Christian Lavers, the president and CEO of the ECNL spends time with Dr. Fergus Connolly right here on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast.
0: From athletes just starting to turn heads to some of the best athletes to ever play their games, Gatorade shows that they are the proven fuel of the best. For the athletes who give everything, nothing beats Gatorade. The studied, tested, and proven fuel of the ECNL. ECNL Boys is partnering with Puma for the second year, driving sport forward with the leading products and the next generation of pros who wear them. Puma has proven themselves as the fastest sports brand in the world the fastest innovation, the fastest players, and the fastest products in the game. They're the perfect partner to complement the speed and talent of our teams. In keeping with their mantra of forever faster, Puma introduces the world's fastest boot, the Ultra. The only boot engineered for speed, the Ultra combines a woven upper with a lightweight outsole for direct forward motion, speed, and acceleration. It's the best in the game, designed for the best players in the game.
1: Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. ECNL President and CEO, Christian Labers' Final segment with Dr. Fergus Conley. Take it away, Christian. Thanks, Dane.
2: Fergus, I listened to a podcast from Jocko Willink. I don't know if you've heard him, a retired Navy SEAL, but he wrote a book called The Dichotomy of Leadership, talking about the constant dichotomy in decision-making and leadership. And your book, 59 Lessons, is a series of anecdotes and lessons by chapter, but there's a corollary in every chapter to what you're talking about. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it seems to me that you embrace this dichotomy in performance <laughs> as well that I thought was very interesting.
3: You know what I actually stole it from uh, someone in, in the legal profession As you would appreciate you need to be able to recognize both sides of an argument. And uh, for for me, there were always times when, uh, you know, rules might not apply. And it was always important to recognize that, you know, life is chaotic, leading people is chaotic. It's very difficult to have absolutes uh, when you're dealing in, you know, dealing with people. There's always times when you need to have some flexibility. You need to be able to appreciate where people are, understand where they're coming from and know when to apply it. And, you know, that's something you learn through, Mistakes (laughs) uh, mistakes <laughs> and trial and error, but it's about recognizing, you know, that you're trying to help people achieve something, and you can't just uh, look at things just black and white all of the time. I think
2: that's a really important and valuable perspective. It brings to mind the cliche of you want to have strong opinions that are weakly held. Where yes, you are. yes, maybe talk about that. I mean, you've been doing this for a long time, right now, and and I would imagine that there are things that were. Uh, close to gospel 15, 20 years ago that you look at now and say, man, that was wrong, but you're not afraid to change as data and evidence and just understanding changes. So when you look back at, yeah. your, give us some examples of that, maybe.
3: Yeah. You know, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to steal that line. The, the line that I've been using recently is, you know, uh, hold that softly, you know, so this, this, a uh, whole lot idea softly because yeah, like, you I mean, there's so many things that I've changed you know, my mind about, and initially you get scared because you think, oh, well, I shouldn't change my mind. But I remember a coach saying to me that if somebody comes up with something better and proves it, I reserve the right to change my mind. And I love when I meet people who can justify why they're doing something and why they're not doing anything anymore. Like when I started at, at the very beginning, to me, it was all about strength training. That was, you know, strength was the, the secret and then it became speed, then went through a phase that it was nutrition and supplements. Uh, when it came to tactical understanding, it was about distance run. It wasn't even about speed. Then we started to realize, well, you know, we would play. I remember Terry Henry, like, I mean, we always thought oh, it was about when I was with Bolton, it was about, you know, the, how much running we could do. And uh, then we'd look at Terry Henry's, you know, stats. And the guy might, you know, run a few hundred meters, but he might have, you know nine sprints in the game i think it was one day and scored two goals against us and you realize okay it's just not quite about you know how much running you do and so you keep learning more and more but the challenge then is to come up with a philosophy or a methodology that works for you and uh you know and, and keep keep learning uh as much as you can and then like i said going to spend time with someone like a vitor friday who looks at the game in a completely different way and or uh different opinions. And, and the other thing as well, I think that's has helped me as well as to listen to those people who, you know, are, have perhaps completely different perspectives and are argumentative and you don't agree with them, you know, to, you know, not let your biases get in the way that somebody, you know, people generally always have something valuable to share with you. And and to share. And it's important to listen to other opinions. Even if you don't agree with them at first, you know, take all of those opinions, listen carefully, because you, you'd be surprised at, at what you can learn.
2: I think having a dissenting opinion or somebody who plays that role is really helpful in major decisions. It certainly prevents silly decisions from being made, or at least prevents them from having a high likelihood of being made.
3: I tell the story about um, you know, way back after the Reformation, the Vatican created this department within the Vatican, which was called the Defender of the Faith. And their job was when somebody would propose a saint, their job was to go out, do all the research and come back and justif- and explain why this person should not become a saint. That department became known ultimately as the devil's advocate, the department of the devil's advocate. But it was an actual department in the Vatican and the, the, their role was to argue against what everybody would perceive as being you know, acceptable. And I think all great organizations should encourage dissent and uh, you know, we call it in, in the military or in, in some organizations, we call it red teaming where you actually ask somebody to, or a number of people to argue, okay, why is this not a good idea? And I would do that with my departments. I would say to to my staff, I would say, look, this is what I'm thinking of doing. This is, you know, it it might be very close to, to finished, whatever the idea was. And I would always use the phrase, I want you to break this for me. Like, tell me why this won't work. Like, tell me where the errors are. Because once you launch it, once you go out into the world with it, you know, those cracks are going to be found by either your opponent, for example, if it's a game plan or by whatever, but you, you want to break it inside in in that circle of trust. And to your point, having those dissenting voices who uh, are not afraid to say, you know, Christian, yeah, I don't think that's a good idea. Or, you know, Christian, have you thought about this or it won't work because of this? That's valuable because if you, if you don't do it, you know, life's gonna, life's going to find that crack for you. Isn't
2: that an interesting comment in uh, times like now where people are in echo chambers and the inability to converse about differing opinions is disruptive in so many ways. And when you hear that description of how a functional team works, team, whether it's athletes or leaders, to share and debate, to find the best solution, the truth will out, as they say. I wish that was more common today than it has become.
3: I find it really beneficial to me because... You're right. Like you have an echo chamber and the other problem as well, if you're a coach or you're in a leadership position, you know, people sometimes feel scared to bring forward a criticism because they're afraid that it's either sounds silly or that you won't listen to them. And man, the number of times that I have that, you know, somebody like far younger has brought forward an idea that has either um, changed how I've done something pointed out an obvious you know, emperor has no clothes moment. You know, you haven't even thought of this. Um, another v- important benefit of it is that sometimes the person in your group who points out an issue doesn't hit the nail on the head, but they draw your attention to something else. You went, you know what, actually, that's not quite it, but you just reminded me of something else. Or, and I, I'll give you a classic example. At, at the 49ers, when I was there, we, built, uh, we were building the Levi Stadium And there was a, we were putting the whole recovery room area in underneath the stadium for the players. So we had saunas, uh, hot tubs, cold plunges, and I was putting up signs and I spent a lot of money. I think it was about $15,000 on signs outside the sauna and whatever saying, okay, you know, this is the, this is why you use this. This is when you use it. This is for how long, this is the temperature. And this is what you do afterwards like so for example you know hydrate afterwards don't stay in it for and of course uh, it was actually colin kaepernick called me he said hey fergus come here i want you to have a look at something and he brought me around the corner these huge signs have been put up wonderfully colorful signs and images and he said uh can you explain what celsius is to me because i had put the i had used european temperatures instead of uh, American format. And like, I mean, just if I had had somebody and if I had been humble enough to ask somebody else to look over it first, I wouldn't have cost the 49ers thousands of dollars on and, and signs. But again, that's just, you know, you need to have people around who can look over things for you and challenge you and get, get somebody else's opinion. Alternatively
2: for you could just get every stadium to change a hundred yards. Into-
3: <laughs> <laughs> we could go metric. I could start a campaign. Let's go. Let's go metric. Get rid of inches and feet. Let's go kilometers while, while we're at it. Yeah.
2: This has been phenomenal. I got one more question for you before we go, but you gave a Ted talk recently on vulnerability, learning from failure and ultimately authenticity, which is what hit me on that is really what it means to be truly authentic. Can you expand on that or maybe summarize that message?
3: Yeah, I think um, being in a leadership role for, um, or in leadership roles and in stressful roles for a number of years, I grew used to solving problems on my own. And uh, I grew used to uh, working with high achievers, trying to help other people. And when I was struggling, I didn't reach out for help. And it was actually a really good friend of mine, a Navy SEAL, who, you know, I, I, I burned out, actually, I didn't, I didn't look for help. And I had people around me who uh, I could have leaned on. But to me, it was a case of, you've got difficult moments, you struggled through them. And I burned out. Uh, I drank to fall asleep. I, when I finally got up the next morning to drive to my girlfriend's house for help. It was just too late. And I got a DUI. And It was, um, it was a big learning experience for me, but it was, it was about four days afterwards. Uh, one of my really close friends, Navy SEAL called me and he said, basically, why didn't you call me? And I, and I remember at the time, I remember, I know exactly where I was standing in my apartment on my phone, looking out the window. And I remember telling him, well, why was I going to call you? You know, you, you guys go through difficult times. This was something that I should have been able to deal with. And, you know, he shared a story that of a time that he had gone through similar when he had had to reach out for help. And it was, you know, it, it was a really important lesson for me that we all need during difficult times, people in our lives that we can lean on and we need to know who they are. You know, I call them sheepdogs because you will always have like, for example, coronavirus or pandemic is a wolf that affects everybody. But we all have to have people in our lives that we can lean on. And I think being... Uh, authentic. And the funny thing is I would have spoken with him in the weeks beforehand and he would have asked me, how are you doing? And I would have said, I'm doing good, doing great. But that wasn't the truth. And it wasn't that I was lying to him. It was, I had stuff going on and I should have been able to lean. I should have been more honest with him. I should have been more honest with somebody who loved me and who cared for me. And I chose not to be honest and authentic with him. And that was, uh, that was a big learning experience for me. It was surprising after I did the TED Talk, the number of coaches who called me and said, hey, Fergus, yeah, I've been in, been in your shoes. And uh, I, I think we all go through it. I just had to learn it the hard way.
2: It is a reflective moment when you think about how many times you ask the question, how are you doing, when you don't even expect an answer except for fine. And how many times when you do answer that, when you're dealing with stuff and you answer fine. I sometimes think if if somebody said, how are you doing? And the answer was not very well. How many people would actually stop and say, oh, well, let's talk about it versus, well, that's not how this exchange of words is supposed to go. But I think to hear that from you and with some of the background you have dealing with high performers, I think is ultimately an empowering thing for a lot of people.
3: Well, it's, it's funny, Christian, because... Um particularly even when I was at the 49ers, we had a lot of guys with domestic violence incidents and drug addiction and whatever. And like, I mean, I put together a program to help those guys off the field. And the irony was when it came to looking after myself, like, I mean, I had nobody either doing it for me or I wasn't even aware of, um, I wasn't even able to see the signs and symptoms in, in myself because you're always focused on somebody else as a coach And after that, I became a lot smarter about and a lot more critical of myself, like a lot, uh, a lot harder on myself about taking, making sure I took time off when, and that was one of the changes I made. Christian was when somebody would ask me, you know, people close to me would ask me, "How how are you? I would always, I would always answer honestly. I would take the time to think and say, yeah, you know, actually the last few days have been a bit tough, but, and then that would lead into something. Um, but you're so right. That question, how you doing? Doing fine. It's just how many times will that be said today? And how many honest answers or interactions will that lead to? Hopefully, hopefully this talk might lead to a few more honest conversations.
2: Well, we really appreciate having you here with us. This was a fascinating discussion for me, and I hope it is for everybody that's listening, but really appreciate your time here You're a guy with such uh, an impressive background and to have you share your insights is something that we really appreciate.
3: Christian, I'm genuinely... Humbled and honored, genuinely to be asked. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast,
1: Dr. Fergus Conley. If people want to reach you or tweet at you or
3: find more about you, can you share some ways to get a hold of you? Yeah, the easiest—just go to my website, fergusconley.com. Just keep it simple. <laughs> That's the easiest place to get me, Dean.
1: That works for me, and this interview works for all of you. I want to thank Christian Labers, the president and CEO of the ECNL, Dr. Fergus Conley and all of you, the players, coaches, members, administrators that make the ECNL go. We'll see you in two weeks for another edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast.
0: Thanks for listening to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com and if you have a suggestion for the show or a great idea for a guest please email us at info@theecnl.com at breaking the line the ecnl podcast is an ecnl production ecnl more than a league